Chapter 4 of The Radio Planet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. C. Lindholm. The Radio Planet by Ralph Milne Farley. Chapter 4 The Coup d'etat. The next morning, Miles Cabot was led under guard to the council chamber of the Dread Thirteen, Formis and her twelve advisers. The accused was placed in a wicker cage from which he surveyed his surroundings as the proceedings opened. On a raised platform stood the Ant Queen, surmounted by a scarlet canopy which set off the perfect proportions of her jet-black body. On each side of her stood six refined and intelligent Ant-Men, her counselors. One of the twelve was Doggo. Messenger Ants hurried hither and thither. First, the accusation was read, Miles being furnished with a written copy. The witnesses were then called. They were veterans who had served in the wars in which Cabot had twice freed Cupia from the domination of its Formian oppressors. They spoke with bitterness of the downfall of their beloved Formia. Their testimony was brief. Then the accused was asked if he wished to say anything in his own behalf. Miles rose, then shrugged his shoulders, sat down again, and wrote, I fully realize the futility of making an argument through the antennae of another, whereupon the Queen and the Council went into executive session. Their remarks were not intended for the eyes of the prisoner, but he soon observed that some kind of a dispute was on between Dago, supported by two counselors named M.U. and Foom on one side, and a counselor named Barth on the other. As this dispute reached its height, a messenger ant rushed in and held up one paw. Cabot's interpreter, not deeming this a part of the executive session, obligingly translated the following into writing. The messenger. Yuri lives and reigns over Cupia. It is his command that Cabot die. Barth. It is the radio. Know then, O queen, and ye, members of the council, that when we fled across the boiling sea under the gallant leadership of Prince Yuri, the man with the heart of a Formian, he brought with him one of those powerful radio sets invented by the beast who is our prisoner here today. Supporters of Yuri still remain among the Cupians, and he has been in constant communication with these ever since shortly after our arrival here. From them, he learned of the return of Miles Cabot to the planet Minos. Then Yuri disappeared. Those of us who were closest to him suspected that he had gone back across the boiling sea to claim as his own the throne of Cupia. But we hesitated to announce this until we were sure, for we feared that some of our own people would regard his departure as desertion. Yet who can blame him for returning to his fatherland and to the throne which is his by rights? To which the messenger added, And he offers to give us back our own old country if we too will return across the boiling seas again. It is a lie, Doggo shouted. Yuri, the usurper of the thrones of two continents? Bah! shouted Emu. Yuri, our rightful leader, shouted Barth. Give us a queen of our own race, shouted Foom. Release the prisoner, shouted the queen. And that is all that Miles learned of the conversation, for his interpreter at this juncture stopped writing and obeyed the queen. The Earthman was free. With one bound he gained the throne where fighting was already in progress between the two factions. 
Barth and Dago were rolling over and over on the floor in a death grapple, while the Ant Queen had backed to the rear of the stage, closely guarded by Emu and Foom. Seizing one of the pikes which supported the scarlet canopy, Miles wrenched it loose and drove it into the thorax of Barth. In another instant, the Earthman and Dago stood beside the Queen. Ant-Men now came pouring into the chamber through all the entrances, taking sides as they entered and sized up the situation. If it had still been in vogue among the Formians to be known by numbers rather than names, and to have these identifying numbers painted on the backs of their abdomens followed by the numbers of those whom they had defeated in the duels so common among them, then many a Formian would have got the number of many another that day. As Miles battled with his pike beside Formus, Queen of the Ants, he could well imagine the conflicting shouts of Death to the Usurper! Formia! For the Formians! Long live Queen Formus! Long live Prince Yuri! Which must have resounded throughout the chamber. But to him, all was silent, for he was without the antennae wherewith to pick up the radiated speech of the contenders. So as he wielded the pike in silence, he had opportunity to reflect on the incongruity of his position. Here was he, Miles Cabot, regent of Cupia, the man who had driven the ants forever from their dominion over his people, and yet now fighting side by side with their leaders, defending the life of their queen. Yet was she not the daughter of Dago, his only friend among the ants? And would not her victory mean the speedy return of Miles to his own continent? As the Earthman jabbed to right and left among the supporters of his enemy Yuri, there came to his human ears the sound of rifle fire. It might prove a godsend, or an added menace, according to whose paw held the rifle. But no chances must be taken on the life of the queen, so Miles made frantic signs to Dago of impending danger. The queen and her supporters, outnumbered, were fighting with their backs to one of the walls of the room. A short distance along this wall, on the side where Cabot stood, was a door. So he now began edging his way along the wall to this door. This was not difficult, as the Ant-Men, having only their mandibles to fight with, greatly respected his pike. He gained the door and passed by, but not through it. The shots came nearer and nearer. Then Dago opened the door and slipped through with Formus and the rest of her immediate supporters. The door closed, and Miles Cabot stood guarding the exit with his pike alone against the hordes of Antum. He had no difficulty in defending himself from those in front of him, but the ants who began to close in on him from each side were a different matter. He received several bad scratches on his shoulders and hips, and his toga was ripped and torn. But fortunately, he was able to ward off their paralyzing bites. Nevertheless, his enemies pressed so close that it was difficult for him to manipulate his long weapon. In fact, it was only the jamming of the ants upon one another and upon the dead bodies of their slain comrades that kept them from him. He now was holding his pike by the middle with both hands, using one end as a club and the other as a dagger. The black circle of the ants was steadily closing in on him. A pair of mandibles from his left snapped angrily within a few inches of his throat. Instantly, he drove the point of his lance home between the horrid jaws. But at the same instant, his butt was seized by a pair of jaws to his right, he could not pull it free. At last, he was weaponless. And not only that, but pinned to the wall by the shaft of his own pike as well. And then, to his surprise, the ants before him separated as at a command. The butt of his lance was dropped, 
as Miles wrenched the point loose from the dead body of the Formian in which it had been stuck, and gazed expectant down the long aisle which had opened before him, he saw confronting him at the other end an Antman armed with the peculiar type of claw-operated rifle which the Formians had adapted from those which Miles himself had built for Cupian use in the First War of Liberation. Briefly, the two surveyed each other. Then, slowly the rifle was raised until its aim settled squarely upon the Earthman's chest. Instantaneously, the glance of Miles Cabot swept the black hordes which hemmed him in on each side. There was no escape. Yet how can man die better than facing fearful odds? With a wild war-whoop, which was utterly lost on the radio sense of the assembled Formians, Miles charged down the narrow way straight into the muzzle of the rifle of his antagonist. The astonished Ant-Man hastily pulled the trigger. A shot rang out, but still the impetuous rush of Miles continued, and before the rifle could be discharged a second time, Miles had driven his spear deep into the leering insect face. The Formian staggered back. The rifle clattered to the floor. The Earthman, not waiting to withdraw his own weapon, stooped and seized the fallen firearm and wheeled to confront his enemies, who fell back in a snarling arc before this new menace. Miles stood now in one of the entranceways of the council chamber, and thus was secure against flank attack, but not against an assault from the rear. In fact, even as he stood thus irresolute, a rattling noise behind him in the hallways revealed to his human ears the approach of a new enemy. What was he to do? To remain as he was meant carte blanche to this newcomer, whereas to turn about would mean that those within the chamber would undoubtedly rush him. In this predicament, Miles grasped his gun firmly and wheeled backward to the left until he was flattened against the wall of the corridor in which he was standing. From this position, he could turn his head slightly to the left and see into the council chamber, or to the right and look down the long hall. Directly opposite him was one of those narrow, slit-like windows so typical of Peruvian architecture. It was too narrow for the passage of the huge body of an ant-man, but a human being could conceivably squeeze through. Thus, it offered a means out, a way of escape. The lone ant in the corridor was joined by the others. They and their compatriots within the chamber slowly closed in on the cornered Earthman. There was no time to speculate upon the depth of the drop outside. With a suddenness which caused his aggressors to recoil momentarily, Miles dashed across the window, forced his way through, and still grasping his rifle, plunged headlong two stories into a clump of gray lichens in the courtyard below. Hastily extracting himself, he looked up at the window which he had just quitted. There, framed by the masonry, was the head of an ant-man. A quick shot and the head stared at him no more. Before another Formian could take the post at the window to observe the direction of Cabot's departure, the latter ran quickly from the courtyard garden into the interior of the building again. His first thought was to join Dago, Queen Formis, and their faction. So, taking a firm hold of his rifle, he hurried in the direction in which they had made their escape. The first ant-man whom he met within the building was Emu, one of the three members of the council who had been a party to the original conspiracy. This ant was fleeing from something in very evident terror, so that it was all Cabot could do to stop him, but the threat of rifle shooting was finally effective. Then, extracting a cartridge from the magazine of his firearm, Cabot scratched upon the smooth wall the brief question, What of Doggo and Formis? 
Emu snatched the cartridge and quickly wrote the reply. Dead. Both dead. The revolution has collapsed. Flee for your life. Then the Ant-Man clattered rapidly down the corridor, taking the precious cartridge with him. He had not been too flustered to think of that. Miles heaved a sigh of self-reproach at having brought his friends to this sad end. But then he reflected. Dago had been in a situation in which conflict with the authorities and then execution would have been inevitable sooner or later. The revolution had been his one best bet, and it was no one's fault that it had failed. Now that Dago and Formus were dead, there was no longer any obligation binding Miles to stay and fight. In fact, he owed it to his loved ones in Cupia to preserve his own life until he could find some way of rejoining them. So he set out to escape from the city. For some time, he threaded the corridors without meeting any ants, although occasionally there drifted down to him the sounds of fighting on the upper levels. But at last, as he rounded a turn, he saw before him a Formian, and it was one whom he recognized, namely the messenger ant who had brought to the trial the radiogram from Prince Yuri. The ant's back was toward him. Cabot cautiously withdrew a step, then raising his rifle he again advanced and fired full at the enemy. But the hammer merely clicked. There was no explosion. The magazine was empty. Cabot's first impulse was to throw the weapon away. Then he reflected that even an unloaded gun might well serve to awe his enemies and hold them at a distance, so he retained it. By this time, the messenger ant had disappeared around a turn further down the corridor, so Cabot hastened after him, for it had suddenly occurred to the Earthman that this ant was undoubtedly returning to the hidden radio set whence he had come. Radio. Means of a communication with his own continent, if he could but reach the instruments. The messenger had announced at the trial that Yuri was in Cupia and knew of Cabot's presence in this new land. Thus, it was certain that complete wireless communication had been established between the two continents. But equally, undoubtedly, this communication had been established at a wavelength which kept the knowledge of Cabot's return pretty much a secret of Prince Yuri and his own followers. This information would probably induce the renegade prince to speed up whatever nefarious schemes he had afoot in Cupia. But if Cabot could once get on the air and adjust the Formian sending set to the wavelength of Luno Castle, or run it through all its available wavelengths, he could broadcast to the Cupian nation the fact that he was alive and well and would return again, though he knew not how, to lead them. Such news should strengthen the hearts of the loyal Cupians to rally to the cause of his wife, the Princess Leela, and his son, the baby king. So he quickened his pace and soon caught sight of the messenger ant. From then on, he stealthily stalked his quarry, who led him through many a winding passageway before finally they emerged from the city into the open fields. Beyond the fields lay the rocky foothills of a mountain range. Caution dictated that Cabot remain under the shelter of the city walls until the Formian disappeared among the rocks. Then he ran lightly across the plain to take up the trail once more. As he too gained the rocks, he glanced back to see if his departure had been noted. No, there was no sign of life. Evidently the fighting had drawn all the inhabitants to the interior of the city, so with a sigh of relief, Miles hurried after the messenger ant. At the place where Miles had noticed the Formian enter the rocks, there was the well-defined beginning of a trail. So up this winding trail he sped, and soon caught sight of his quarry. 
From that time on, more caution was necessary, but nevertheless the pursuer was able to keep the pursued always in sight until just after a turn in the road had obscured his view, Miles came upon a place where the way forked. Pausing, he scratched his head in dismay, then carefully examined the ground for evidence of claw marks, but none were apparent. Dropping to his hands and knees, the earthman scrutinized the dirt with even more care, and at last, imagining that he observed some slight scratches to the right, he took the right-hand branch. It was necessary for him to proceed with great rapidity if he would catch up with the messenger ant, so Miles broke into a dog trot. On and on he ran, up into the rocky mountains. As he sat down, exhausted, on a large boulder, just as the silvery sky turned crimson in the west, and darkness crept up out of the east, it was quite evident that he had taken the wrong road at the fork, and also that he must now spend the night, half clad and alone, amid the rocks of the mountains of this strange new continent. End of chapter 4. Coup d'etat. Recorded by M. C. Lindholm.